Welcome to our podcast, Public Health Uncoded, with Dr. Saroj Pachauri, brought to you by Center for Human Progress in partnership with the POP movement, where POP stands for Protect Our Planet. Dr. Saroj Pachauri, a public health expert, provides commentary on some of the major public health issues of the current times and the various determinants of public health at play with high-risk and vulnerable groups. Every month, Dr. Saroj Pachauri, a doctor of medicine and a distinguished public health scholar, with over 60 years of experience will unpack key public health concerns and opportunities in the current global arena with evidence and insights. Now here is your host Rusha Pathak. Welcome back. Today I am joined by Dr. John Townsend, Chair of the Rotary Action Group for Reproductive Maternal and Child Health and the International Center for Research on Women Ethical Review Board. He is a highly accomplished expert in the field of reproductive health and maternal and child health and has focused on policy development and designing interventions to enhance reproductive health services delivery system with a particular emphasis on clients' rights. He worked together with Dr. Saroj Pachauri at Population Council and held various leadership positions including the director of reproductive health and director of country strategy. Today is a World Population Day dedicated to focusing on the importance of population issues. Therefore, we will be discussing importance of optimal reproductive health and various aspects involved in achieving it in today's conversation with Dr. Saroj and Dr. John. Sexual and reproductive health and rights as a subject holds a great importance as there is need to emphasize the empowerment of individuals, especially young women, to overcome hurdles and gain knowledge about their bodies. It is also crucial to understand the evolution of this field from just population development to a broader perspective encompassing sexual and reproductive health and rights. So let's initiate the conversation and hear from the experts who have gained extensive experience in this field over the years. Welcome, Dr. John, and over to you, Dr. Pachauri. Welcome, John. It is such an honor for me that you have agreed to lead this discussion on the subject of sexual and reproductive health and rights, a subject that is very close to my heart. And and you and I have, in fact, worked on this subject for long, long years. Uh, Today, when we talk about sexual reproductive health and rights, everybody seems to understand the concept, but it took a very long time before this concept was really clearly articulated and understood. So what is the origin of this concept, sexual and reproductive health and rights? It really goes far back to the 40s and 50s when there was a real concern that the population numbers were going up and we needed to control the population. Terms were used like population bomb, population explosion happening in developing countries. There was a concern that numbers were going to grow and we would run out of resources and we had to do something about it urgently. Then in the 70s and 80s, we developed fertility control technologies by which we could prevent pregnancies. And when this happened, and when there were safe and effective technologies for preventing pregnancy, then programs began to be implemented to incorporate those technologies. Now, the concern was really with developing countries, and countries like China, for example, went for a one-child policy. 
Whereas India, being a democratic country, couldn't do that. They went for something that they called a two-child norm. Now, in order to do that, uh, there was a lot of pressure to reduce population size. And so these technologies had to be incorporated. And India chose female sterilization as the technology. The reason for, for that was that it had become very simplified. Laparoscopic sterilizations were now being used where you just made a pinhole a surgical hole and, and you, know, you were able to try the tubes. So it was a very simple method. It was cheap. It was inexpensive. Hospitalization was not required and it was safe and effective. So there became a huge pressure to sterilize women so that we could control population. Now, what all done with very good intentions, no doubt, but what happened was that the results were mixed. There was a lot of coercion. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of force getting women to get them sterilized. And the numbers were increasing, but the quality was very poor. And, you know, quality was compromised. And consequently, women were suffering from all kinds of complications. So this whole business of ethics, women's rights, violation of women's rights became a concern. And this hit the headlines. And when this happened, women activists and feminists said this cannot be. And so there was a lot of discussion and debate all around the world, starting from the grassroots, going on to the national level. And finally, the international level, where in 1994, the International Conference on Population and Development was held in Cairo, and where 179 countries, nations, came to a consensus and signed off on a very forward-looking program of action which placed ethics at the center, which placed women's rights at the center and services around that. So this is how it all began. And today, however, we have sexual and reproduction rights programs around the world. And John, I'd like you to tell us what are the services that are incorporated within this broad canvas of sexual and reproductive health and rights? And you know, who are the target groups, the men, the women, young people, uh, adolescents, especially young people who are sexually active, and how can families and communities address the sexual and reproductive health information needs of these people? Can you say some something to enlighten us on, on these issues, please? Well, thank you, Saroj. Uh, uh, the background here behind me is uh, of a, a young woman who has to go over a number of hurdles in her life to achieve uh, optimal uh, reproductive health. And we have to follow her over time to make sure that uh, she's actually achieving those goals. The area of, of sexual and reproductive health is quite broad. It includes uh, learning about your own body and adolescence, uh, learning how to relate to other people, how to incorporate uh, important issues like respect, a sense of autonomy and interaction with others, including parents and community. It, in it includes being prepared for pregnancy, pregnancy itself, uh, childbirth, uh, and so on through through menopause, and I would suspect I would suggest even post menopause, in the, in the effect, in the sense that many of the the sequelae of, of problems that occur to to women post menopause are a result of their reproductive lives. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that that happened as a result of the the conference on on population and development in Cairo in 1994, and later the Women's Rights Conference in in uh, in in Kenya that you referred to uh, was that we changed the focus of our attention from global population numbers to actually the needs and and desires of women, their partners, and their families. I think that was a very important issue because it highlighted some important issues. I think that relate to to medical ethics. So it isn't just technology that we're talking about. We're talking about kind of ethics about how you apply that technology. And there are three kind of dimensions to that. The first is uh, autonomy, respect. People given the opportunity to learn about what's going on, what are their options, uh, where they get it, who the provider is, and do they provide consent? That was an issue that, that I think people were concerned about 
with these massive national policies that were focused only on the numbers. The second is, what's the benefit of these things? What's the benefit of the technologies that are developed and services? It isn't just technology because it's full of range of services, including elements of quality. It, it, do these actually improve people's lives? Uh, are they closer to achieving uh, those goals of well-being that were promised in the Millennium Development Goals? Uh, and the third is distributive justice. Who benefits from this? Is this just the wealthy or a, a particular group in the, in the West or in the North? Uh, who benefits from this? And how do we, how do we make sure that these, uh, these results and benefits are available to everybody who needs them? So that's the, the basic criteria looking at this. I think, you know, if we want to begin with young people, one of the ways I think would be to, to essentially uh, look at uh, UNESCO and WHO's comprehensive sexual uh, education program. It's designed with, with young people in mind, their needs, but it also in, incorporates uh, families and communities and schools. It's an evidence-based uh, program uh, that supports uh, increasing knowledge, but not just about sex per se, but it includes information about values, uh, such as respect for others, equality, non-discrimination, em empathy, accountability, and so on. Uh, and it's something that can be delivered in communities around the world. It's translated in lots of languages. It's a particularly good product, in part because it focuses on actual needs of young people. So it believes that if you provide young people with the information that's age appropriate and give opportunities for the people they care about to be consulted, uh, it, it, it results in a, a, an important benefit to them, both in terms of reducing undesired pregnancies, in, in terms of uh, achieving uh, the goals uh, they, they have in terms of uh, marriage and relationships, uh, and it also allows them to, to think broader about themselves in relationship to their family, their peers, and their community. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, well, in addition to pregnancies and so on, <clears throat> the, the related subject of maternal and infant mortality, we need to reduce maternal and infant mortality. And words are used like how to avoid pregnancies that are too soon, too late, and too close together. What does that mean? Well, Saroj, there, uh, globally, there's about 130 to 140 births a year. There's probably 15% more in terms of pregnancies because there are about 15% of all pregnancies end up in a, a miscarriage. There are ways in, in which analyzing the data to whom these occur, uh, we can, we've, we've learned some things. The first is that pregnancies that are too soon, in other words, before 20, more or less have a higher risk mortality on the part of the, of the young woman. Uh, and, uh, and that has multiple dimensions to it. Uh, is it the result of uh, sexual violence? Is it related to, to some family issue? Is it, uh, is it something that they were aware of? Um, particularly in places where they're focused on abstinence only, a pregnancy early on usually suggests uh, uh, rape, incest, or not full consent. Too late uh, is, is an issue that they've begun to look at, at what are the problems or the challenges of having pregnancies uh, Late and late is commonly thought of as above 35, part because fertility goes down somewhat uh, yearly after about 30, about 30, uh, and uh, and also you you end up with some some additional challenges with multiple births, uh, Down syndrome, and other other issues related to uh, later birth. The, the the notion is that the ideal time to have a a child, according to the the the, the WHO and the reviews, are somewhere between 20 uh, 20 and 30. It seems to be the uh, the ideal time in terms of health, in terms of individual choices, that the, the the range is big. As long as there's there's consent and a clear understanding uh, about the risks and opportunities and benefits, and people have access to quality of care, 
then then the pregnancies uh, you know are are fine whenever they're whenever they're desired. Uh, I think that the the third element of that has to do is when the pregnancies are are too, spaced too closely together. Uh, the notion is that there should be at least two to three years between uh, between births. WHO recommends at least two uh, between pregnancies, the end of a a pregnancy and a birth and a, a and the confirmation of a pregnancy. Uh, and that's to make sure that the, the the child who's born access to all the benefits of breastfeeding, attention, child development efforts for an additional pregnancy is taken on. The issue around this also has to do with women's autonomy. There are many roles for women beyond motherhood. And and if there is sufficient spacing uh, and the timing is set so that women have the opportunities to play critical roles in their family, their community, in the, in the, in the economy, uh, that that will ultimately benefit both the woman, her child, and, and the family. John, you mentioned spacing. What is the difference between spacing and limiting? And what contraceptives are commonly used by different types of clients? What is the role of men in pregnancy planning? Can you tell us about all of that? It's, it's, these are issues that need to be discussed, I think. Good question, Saroz. Uh, spacing is essentially the notion that the pregnancy should be spaced, as we were talking about, two to three years uh, at a minimum, uh, and more depending on on what your personal interests are. Limiting is essentially said essentially uh, using a, a either a contraceptive or avoiding the sex entirely uh, to to make sure that uh, that you have no more children. There are many methods uh, for uh, for spacing, and I will mention a few. Uh, and for limiting, uh, there's more than we think. So there's sterilization, as you mentioned, uh, both female and male. Um, uh, there's uh, um, uh, an IUD or an IUS, which is inserted in the in the in the uterus, and it's highly effective. And there are also implants, contraceptive implants, that are on the market. While they they are reversible, while the implants and the IUD are reversible, they are often used for simply limiting because they're so highly effective. It's more than ninety nine percent effective, and they aren't dependent on how the, on the user's behavior. In terms of sterilization, that's also, as you mentioned, several ways of, of, of achieving that. Uh, and, and increasingly, they're, they're safer um, and uh, easier to do, but they are not reversible. So by and large. So in terms of for men, uh, in terms of sterilization, there's vasectomy, uh, which is actually quite an easy procedure. Uh, and it can be done in an outpatient office. It does require training. It's a simple cut of the vas and it's, uh, and it's becoming increasingly popular uh, and it's uh, used a lot in North America, in parts of Europe and Australia. Uh, in terms of spacing, there are lots of methods that have been developed. Uh, injectables, uh, lactational amenorrhea for, for women who've, who've given birth, um, uh, pills, patches, vaginal rings, a variety of, of methods that were developed in, in, the, in the 90s and more recently. And those, those methods uh, may work for a month or three months, uh, or six months, uh, they're, they're, they often require resupply, uh, and that may be a challenge for some people, depending on where they live. Or, or, uh, and because they're, they require resupply and the dependent part on the behavior of the user, uh, they tend to be around ninety percent in terms of effectiveness over a, over a year. In other words, if a woman, if hundred women use this uh, method over a year, uh, uh, about uh, only 10, 10 would become pregnant if they didn't want to become pregnant in part because you, people use them unreliably. There are other methods uh, that are, are around for a long time, condoms, diaphragms, fertility awareness methods, and withdrawal and so on, spermicides. They're less effective. They have more problems with, with follow-up. 
and, and it gets us to the to the issue of, of the role of men. Uh, in in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, uh, young men uh, are the major contraceptive users. 25% of, of young men in West Africa, for example, uh, use condoms uh, in their last relationship. Uh, so while they, they need to use them with their, their partner's uh, consent and so on, um, it, it's, it's quite remarkable because that isn't what we've seen in many other, in many other settings. Secondly, I, I think uh, uh, support for women's contraceptive use is really important. Being aware of the, the potential side effects uh, that might occur uh, in in the use of the the method that the woman has chosen, um, and and thirdly, if there's no interest in in additional uh, pregnancies with the partner, uh, men always have the option of vasectomy. So, uh, including postpartum vasectomy, which is a kind of a, a new concept that's that's becoming a, more popular around the world. And that's a very comprehensive, uh, provided a very contra- comprehensive understanding of the methods large number of methods for spacing and limiting that are being used. And men's roles is very interesting, very, very interesting, because by and large, uh, in most countries, that is not the case. Um, now, uh, we have been implementing sexual and reproductive health and rights programs around the world for some years. Fertility, the story on fertility has de- changed significantly. You know, we were talking about population control, control of numbers, high fertility rates, and so on. The situation on the ground right now is the opposite, in fact. Can you say a few words about that? What is happening actually now? Globally, the total population of the world is is, is about uh, or will be around 11.5, I think, by by uh, 2100. Uh, it's approaching that, but it, it, it's it's essentially uh, slowing down in part because uh, uh, couples want fewer children. In the in the 50s, uh, the typical family in sub-Saharan Africa would have uh, 6.5 uh, children. Uh, two, two miscarriages, and they would lose some children due to poor health. Um, and so uh, there was a high uh, infant and child mortality. Uh, th- that's changing now. And uh, increasingly, uh, even in, in places like, like India, you're familiar, the, the, the south of India pretty much has a fertility or number of children per, per, per woman uh, similar, to, similar to Europe. Uh, and in some places, it's close to Italy, which has a uh, number the average number of, of children per woman is like 1.8. Uh, the uh, two children is the replacement, or 2.1 children is the replacement number. So, evening out the births and deaths, if you want a stable population in the world, you'd want to get most countries down to that. But most women now really want to have around two. Uh, it isn't necessarily because that that they don't like children or they don't want to have children. Uh, but the, the issue is around uh, timing uh, and the cost of uh, children now. Uh, so all over the world, even in rural societies where where uh, uh, child labor was a big issue in the 70s and 80s, uh, I think now that you know uh, many countries are are below the 2.5 number, and it, this is raising the alarm among some traditional uh, patriarchy uh, groups. Uh, and those in, they're concerned about uh, labor availability. Uh, they're raising a hue and cry about about we no longer have people. Well, that just isn't the case. But it is the case that the numbers are getting smaller. And I and I think one of the one of the things that we want to be paying attention to uh, is uh, the notion of of coercion on the part of governments or spouses or families to make sure that women return to a traditional role of 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 mothers to the exclusion of other roles. Uh, uh, we saw that in Romania, 
um, uh, about 20 years ago when they're, they're, they, uh, the number of children uh, that, was, that was born in Romania per year uh, was dropping off uh, dramatically. And the president said, no, we have to have, women have to have children. So they forbid abortion. They wanted to make sure that, uh, that, that, that children who were, women who were working were given pregnancy tests periodically to make sure that they weren't, they weren't aborting uh, surreptitiously. Uh, it's also the case in, with some ethnic groups. So, so uh, some countries, including Singapore at one time, uh, only wanted, you know, Chinese as opposed to Malay residents. And so they wanted to make sure that, that there, the, there was few more Chinese ethnic in Singapore than in, uh, uh, than Malaysians who they thought were poor and less educated and, you know, uh, perhaps more Muslim than, than, than Buddhist. These issues I think have, have by and large failed, uh, in, in the, in the same way that the, the coercion to not have children has also failed. Uh, individuals have always looked for ways to control their own fertility. Uh, and they they really resent the acts of, of governments and churches and others to, 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 Force them into a maternity that, that they, you know, aren't prepared for. Well, uh, what about um, what about infertility? Can you say a few words about infertility? That's another. Infertility is a is a is a is a is an increasingly interesting issue. It has two dimensions. One, there's a there's a concern in the press uh, that uh, exposure to environmental toxins uh, has reduced uh, both, uh, uh, men's sperm count as well as women's ability, uh, to, uh, become pregnant or maintain a pregnancy. Uh, and there's, there's some validity to that. Uh, but I think it's also the case that we're, we'd like, there are about 15, 12 to 15% of couples around the world would like to have children, but aren't able to. About 60% of, of these cases are due to uh, uh, sperm uh, inadequacy, and the rest is to, 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 to women's health issues. Uh, usually it's thought of as a women's problem as opposed to a men's problem. And so I think there's, anytime we talk about uh, reproductive health, we have to talk about gender and kind of power and who makes decisions. So you're seeing this creep into our discussion periodically. Infertility, uh, the, the traditional treatments, uh, IV, in, uh, in vitro fertilization, others are expensive uh, and they aren't available everywhere. And so uh, uh, the World Health Organization and others are beginning to look at that. What are the determinants of infertility? Uh, how do you, how do people interpret this? In other words, it, you shouldn't be uh, shaming couples or stigmatizing uh, couples because they don't have uh, uh, children on a, on a regular basis or don't have any. Uh, and many and many women would like to have, or many couples would like to have uh, maybe more than one or wait 10 years to have a, a second one. And uh, and for them, that's secondary infertility. And they would, they would like to have uh, uh, available options for having that. Now, some of those options may be just timing of sex during the during the ovulation uh, period. So, knowing when ovulation occurs and and timing sex at a time to give the the, the greatest chance for becoming pregnant is is one way of dealing with that, as well as allowing couples foregoing this complex and expensive IVF treatment that that will be increasingly available, uh, freezing eggs and all that high technology. It isn't available to most people around the world. So the notion is we should be understanding the determinants of infertility more, being more compassionate, being more accepting, uh, and 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 at the same time look for ways in which we might uh, have a better have a better outcome. Thank you so much, John. You provided a whole array of you know methods of fertility control, infertility. You talked about maternal and infant mortality and how that can be reduced. 
you talked about spacing and limiting and role of men and so on, a very broad, broad agenda, which I think our audience is going to lap up. They'll be very interested in what you've said. Uh, and you've covered a lot of ground in a very short time. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Saraj, and uh, greetings to colleagues in, in India and New York. Thank you. Sexual and reproductive health are often confused to mean the same thing. While they both deal with sexual wellness, they address different aspects of keeping yourself healthy. Sexual health is needed by everyone, while reproductive health may only be a concern to those trying to have a baby. Reproductive health therefore implies that people are able to have a responsible, satisfying and safe sex life and that they have the capability to reproduce and the freedom to decide if, when and how often to do so. It is a public health issue with far-reaching social and economic impacts. Stigma, embarrassment and taboos surround reproductive issues making it difficult for women to talk about them and creating a barrier to women accessing the care they need. During today's discussion, Dr. Pachori and Dr. John addressed questions that are relevant to a broad audience, focusing on reproductive health and related concerns and risk. The topics covered included determining the ideal age for pregnancy, strategies for spacing or limiting pregnancies, infertility issues, the three dimensions of medical ethics, and the use of contraceptives. They also explored global trends in population using examples such as India, where fertility rates are now similar to those in Europe. The replacement number for a stable population is around 2.1 children per couple. The aim of the conversation was to address the general population's concerns about reproductive health and its impact on relationships. Additionally, they discussed concerns among traditional and patriarchal groups regarding declining fertility rates. However, is the alarm raised about the decline in population a genuine cause of concern? We would like to ask our listeners if they are aware of the population trends in their respective countries and whether it bothers them. Please share your thoughts in the comment section and inform others as well about the changing global population trends. In future episodes of Public Health Uncoded with Dr. Saroj Pachori, presented by the Center for Human Progress in collaboration with the POP movement, we will dwell further into sexual and reproductive health and rights. So stay connected for more insightful discussions.